univentricular physiology has fascinated physicians for a very long time. This physiology occurs in specific congenital heart defects where one of the ventricles is underdeveloped. You may have heard of these patients referred to by the palliative surgery that they undergo, the Fontaine procedure. In this episode, I'm visiting with Dr. Eric Krieger, one of the faculty at the University of Washington who specializes in adult congenital heart disease. We discuss the case of an infant born with tricuspid atresia and an underdeveloped right ventricle. We discuss the initial palliative surgeries that occur as an infant and then discuss what complications to look out for as that baby matures into an adult. We review cirrhosis, atrial arrhythmias, and pregnancy. There's a lot of great information, and I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please go to iTunes or your podcast app to leave a review. Thanks. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Hi, thank you for meeting with me today, Dr. Krieger. Can I have you give us your name and your title for our audience? Sure. I'm Eric Krieger. I'm an associate professor of medicine here at the University of Washington, and I direct the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Program here, as well as the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Fellowship. Perfect. Thank you. And today I'm visiting with you to talk about uh, patients who have a Fontan procedure and Fontan physiology, uh, which is fairly rare. Um, and to launch into that, let's start with a case, and I want to start at birth to talk about a baby that's born at 38 weeks with tricuspid atresia. And how do we think about this patients when they're born with tricuspid atresia and a, a maldeveloped right ventricle? And what are the, starting from there, what are the initial problems that the baby is experiencing? And then subsequently, what are the initial surgical procedures to help this baby along? Sure. So tricuspid atresia is one of several different univentricular anatomies where what you end up with is one single functional ventricle. Now, actually, almost all of these babies uh, formally have two ventricles, but one may just be so maldeveloped or so hypoplastic that it really can't achieve any functional goal. So if you have one single functional ventricle, you need to deal with the fact that all your oxygenated and deoxygenated blood are going to end up mixing and then being ejected to the aorta and the pulmonary artery. So it's necessarily going to start off life as a cyanotic congenital heart defect. In, in someone with tricuspid atresia, what you typically have, of course, is an atretic tricuspid valve and a hypoplastic right ventricle. And you need to get that blue blood out of the right atrium, usually across a ASD or a PFO into the left atrium, and then you have purple blood in the left ventricle that's going to eject to the aorta and the pulmonary artery. And there's a lot of different flavors of tricuspid atresia, actually. You can have tricuspid atresia with normally related great arteries, transposed great arteries. You can have pulmonic stenosis. And how you manage each of these babies is going to depend on their initial anatomy. But your primary goal is to make sure you have unobstructed outflow out of the right atrium, and then you need to have a balanced amount of flow to the aorta and the pulmonary artery. You neither want to over-circulate the pulmonary artery with excessive pulmonary blood flow, but you also need to make sure you have adequate pulmonary blood flow, for example, in the baby with uh, 
pulmonic stenosis so that you can get oxygenated blood back to the heart. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. And so in a patient, uh, in a baby with trichospidotresia, uh, one of our primary goals uh, initially is that there's essentially minimal or low blood flow to the pulmonary arteries. And so one of the first goals is to augment the pulmonary circulation. So how might that be performed or accomplished uh, in the neonate? Yeah. So if you have a baby that has inadequate pulmonary blood flow, either from tricuspid atresia or really almost any other uh, cyanotic congenital heart disease, generally we augment that with a systemic to pulmonary artery shunt. The the one that you'll see now most frequently is called a Blalock-Tausig-Thomas shunt or a BTT shunt. And that's a, uh, a shunt that's placed in between the subclavian artery to the pulmonary artery, and it diverts blood from the systemic circulation into the pulmonary circulation to increase pulmonary blood flow. Perfect. And I might just give a plug-in. There's a great movie about the Blalock-Tausig-Thompson shunt, or Thomas shunt, Blalock-Tausig-Thomas shunt, something the Lord made. It's like that's an right. HBO special yeah. from some years ago. Um, so after we've done that, um, so that's one of the first procedures that's done within like the first couple of weeks of life, correct? Yeah, you can keep the ductus arteriosus open early on with prostaglandins to augment pulmonary blood flow, but you can't send babies home that way. So you would do a, a BTT shunt before you sent a baby home if you need to augment their pulmonary blood flow. Okay, so we do that for our infant. They go home with a BTT shunt. At what time frame, suppose, are they going to come back for something else? Or what might be the next step in their surgical procedures? Right. So the next goal starts to be trying to separate out the pulmonary and systemic circulation. In this, in a shunted infant with single ventricle anatomy, they are going to be profoundly cyanotic, or they're going to be quite cyanotic at least. And as we move forward through the Fontan pathway, the next steps we take are going to be aimed at trying to get the blue blood to the lungs and the red blood to the body. So somewhere around maybe six months of age, a baby may return for um, a, what's called a Glen shunt, which is a SVC to pulmonary artery shunt, where the SVC is diverted to the pulmonary artery. And what this achieves is it diverts exclusively blue blood out to the pulmonary arteries, which will decrease the amount of cyanosis that the baby has. Okay. And if I understand correctly, those, um, these shunts, the SVC to PA anastomoses, that's a more, that's a newer surgery, but uh, maybe some decades ago, possibly that palliation or that anastomosis may have been differently for like a right atrium to pulmonary anastomosis. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, I, what you're bringing up is the fact that the Fontan operation, which we'll be coming to, has gone through a number of different variations, starting in the early 1970s with uh, just the atrium to the pulmonary artery. Uh, but as we'll get to later, I'm sure that that surgery has been abandoned for, for over 25 years. Yeah. So. Now, typically, a baby will have a, this Glenn procedure, the SVC to the right pulmonary artery, classically, uh, as an interstage before the completion of the Fontan operation. Okay, perfect. Let's go on to what the completion of the Fontan procedure looks like. So now we have a baby with tricuspid atresia, so no functioning right ventricle. We have had a BTT shunt implanted, and then we've subsequently moved to having an SVC now connecting to the pulmonary artery 
and they called it Glenn. And now what's the final procedure? Sure. And just to clarify, at the time of that Glenn, now that you have a good source of pulmonary blood flow, the, you no longer need the BTT shunt. So if a baby has had a, a BTT shunt to, to start with, you would ligate that or take that down at the time of the Glenn operation. Got it. Okay. So after the Glenn shunt, all the blood from the uh, arms and head are going to the pulmonary artery, but all the IVC flow is still going back to the right atrium, left atrium, left ventricle, and out the aorta. So this baby's still going to be cyanotic. And as these babies turn into kids that are running around and moving around and using their legs more, they are going to at some point likely develop uh, limitations related to their ongoing cyanosis. So it's very center dependent, but somewhere between the ages of 18 months and four years, most babies will move forward for their Fontan completion. The Fontan completion is bringing the flow from the IVC up to the pulmonary artery as well, so that now all the blue blood is going to the lungs and all the red blood is coming back to the left ventricle and pumping out to the aorta and turning it into non-cyanotic heart disease. And there's a number of different technical ways you can bring that IVC blood up to the pulmonary artery. You can either use a interposition graft, something like a Gore-Tex interposition graft. That would be called an extracardiac fontan. Or sometimes you tunnel it up through the right atrium itself using the lateral wall of the right atrium and some synthetic material to, to separate it out. And that would be called a lateral tunnel fontan. And both of those are reasonable approaches. And what you referred to earlier, the atrial pulmonary fontan, where you let all the blue blood go to the right atrium and then directly anastomose something like the right atrial appendage onto the pulmonary artery, was uh, now been abandoned for a number of years because those patients had so many arrhythmic complications. Okay. So now, to summarize what we have achieved somewhere between the ages of 18 months and four years of age, is we have an infant or child where the SVC drains directly into the pulmonary arteries. The IVC is then tunneled either through the right atrium with a Gore-Tex graft or using the lateral wall of the right atrium into the pulmonary artery. Thus, we have passive filling of the pulmonary arteries, which then drains into the left atrium, into the left ventricle, which then pumps it into the aorta, thereby bypassing the right ventricle entirely. Yeah, so I mean, the nice thing about the Fontan completion is that you've dealt with cyanosis. And the other thing that's um, important, although maybe less intuitive to a lot of people, is until you finish the Fontan, you have a major volume load on that left ventricle. You're putting much more preload and much more return to that left ventricle, which causes volume loading and can uh, predispose to ventricular dilation and potentially remodeling and dysfunction down the road. So you also need to get rid of that ex excessive volume load in addition to dealing with the cyanosis. So you achieve all those things, but as you pointed out, the penalty is that you're supplying the pulmonary circulation via passive venous pressure. If you only have single ventricle anatomy and you're using your single ventricle to pump your red blood to the aorta, that leaves no ventricles left over to drive blue blood through the lungs. So the Fontan is defined by the absence of a subpulmonary pumping chamber. Okay, perfect. I think that essentially wraps up the uh, portions for the child. 
um, and the surgical procedures. Are there any other comments before we then progress? And we're going to fast forward to when we're seeing this patient as they then grow up into a young adult. Yeah, I think um, we glossed over a couple things, which I think are fine. You know, the, it can be sort of exciting, that interstage time for the baby with the Glenn operation before they get their Fontan. And pediatric cardiologists and pediatric cardiac surgeons really do have their, their hands full with these babies up until the point of Fontan completion. And there's usually very intensive programs to monitor these kids very carefully. That being said, following the Fontan completion, most kids, not all of them, but most kids do really well for long periods of time. Most kids with a Fontan who are 10, 12 years old, who have simple anatomy with a systemic left ventricle, which isn't everyone, but kids like this with tricuspid atresia tend to do pretty well. They play, they can do sports, they do reasonably well at school, and they can lead relatively normal childhood lives. It's a fairly quiescent period, those school age years and middle school years. Gotcha. I'm also remembering, I think we also glossed over about how common this is. So this is a rare disorder um, and affects about two in 10,000 births just in terms of a univentricular physiology. And that can be manifest in many different types, one of which is the specific case in which we're describing a tricuspid atresia although I think the most common type is a hypoplastic left heart syndrome, unfortunately, yeah, which is a much more complicated issue. Right. So if we're talking about, for example, our congenital heart clinic, single ventricle anatomy is far less common than ASDs, VSDs, tetralogy, coarctation, things like this. But that being said, these patients are among the most complex and the ones that take up the most resources. So um, while we maybe don't follow as many Fontan patients as we do tetralogy patients, we know virtually all our Fontan patients quite intimately because as we'll be getting to in adulthood, many Fontan patients end up with, with considerable complications related to it. Mm-hmm. So maybe a, another question or next would be about what age do things to start to not go as well as they were when they were 10 or 12, when they're like playing and doing things normally, about what age do some of the first manifestations or issues with this abnormal physiology start to develop? Sure. A lot of it depends on how complex their single ventricle anatomy is. So we started with a kid with tricuspid atresia, relatively straightforward anatomy as far as single ventricle anatomy is concerned. The left ventricle is the systemic ventricle, so that's pumping to the aorta. Mitral valve problems and aortic valve problems are relatively uncommon. A kid like this you'd expect to do pretty well, certainly into their 20s, maybe into their 30s. On the other hand, conditions where you have a systemic right ventricle that's supporting the circulation, kids who have concomitant valve dysfunction or maybe prosthetic heart valves as part of their initial surgeries, kids who had complications from their early surgeries, those kids uh, may never quite be well during childhood. But someone like this, Mm -hmm. most of our Fontans with straightforward anatomy, single left ventricle, tend to do well, certainly into their 20s and up to their 30s oftentimes. Okay. Which sounds really good from like the complicated issues that they were born with at birth. Um, But yeah, going back to what are the, what are the first manifestations of 
of, of any complications from this? It depends. Um, there's a number of different issues that can come up with the adult patient with a Fontan operation. But as we think about that, let's back up to the physiology about what's going on with the Fontan so that we can start to understand maybe why it would deteriorate as a patient gets older. So with a Fontan circulation, we've talked about a couple times now that it's central venous pressure that's driving blood through the pulmonary vasculature and into the left atrium. And what that means is that your central venous pressure has to be higher than your left atrial pressure. And how much higher does it have to be? Well, it has to be higher enough that it can overcome the resistance of the lungs and still deliver blood. Now, if you're a pliable, healthy, 80-pound, 10-year-old kid who's running around the pulmonary resistance may be low, the left atrial pressure may be low, so the central venous pressure can be low. Just to throw some numbers out there, let's say a normal left atrial pressure is five. You have a little bit of a pressure drop across the pulmonary vasculature. A kid like that could be walking around with a Fontan pressure, a central venous pressure of eight or nine, and that's, that's awfully manageable. But as kids get older, and as we turn into adults, a number of things happen. One is our left atrial pressure just naturally goes up a bit as our ventricles become less compliant. We have some stiffness. Perhaps you have a little mitral or aortic valve dysfunction that's crept in over the years. So maybe your left atrial pressure goes up to 10, which isn't a bad left atrial pressure. You as a cardiology fellow, you'd be delighted to see most of your patients have a left atrial pressure of 10. But let's sure. say the left atrial pressure is 10 or 11. Pulmonary vascular resistance maybe goes up as we get a little older. We get obese. We get sleep apnea. Maybe someone's taken up smoking. You put that on top of the fact that they have some restrictive lung disease from their thoracotomy they got with their BTT shunt, their sternotomy they got at the time of their Glenn and their Fontan operation. Now the pulmonary resistance is higher and the pressure drop across the lungs is higher. So even a healthy 25-year-old Fontan can't have a CVP of 8 or 9 anymore. They're going to have a Fontan pressure, a CVP of 15, 16. Not terrible, but that's not a normal central venous pressure. And that starts to, that starts to have consequences as you get older. Mm -hmm. And the consequences it has, we'll go through them, I think, one by one. But one major one is it puts passive congestive pressure on the liver and we start to see liver dysfunction as these kids get older. Two is it becomes more difficult to augment cardiac output without having prohibitively high Fontan or central venous pressures because the more you increase the flow, the more you increase the resist, the more you increase the, the pressure drop across the lungs. Mm -hmm. So they may have cardiac output limitations as Fontan pressures go up and up and up, the body finds ways to deal with that. So the body will form natural decompressing collateral vessels to decompress the Fontan, to get a, find a way to get the blue blood from the systemic veins back to the heart while bypassing the resistance of the pulmonary circulation. So that might be through pulmonary AVMs. That would bypass the pulmonary circulation. That can be from decompressing systemic venous to pulmonary venous collateral vessels. We call those venovenous collaterals. Mm -hmm. Both of those will decompress the Fontan, but both of those will lead to cyanosis. Mm -hmm. 
So you might see these patients developing, dropping in their oxygen saturations from their baseline SAT of 97, 98% down to 92, 93%. Gotcha. So to summarize a recap, as, as you're getting older, there are there can be issues with, um, with pulmonary resistance for many of the issues that you mentioned. It would be at sleep apnea, which I think is fairly common in patients with adult congenital heart disease, whether they become smoking or they develop obesity and they have some other issues with relaxing and just feeling pressures of their left ventricle. And thereby, they get this increase of pressures transmitted all the way back to their central venous pressure, which is the pressure needed to overcome their pulmonary pressure, since there's no longer a pumping chamber below to overcome that. That's right. The only way you can maintain cardiac output in the setting of these problems is to increase your Fontan pressure or shunt. And both of those things end up having serious consequences. Mm-hmm. And now, to be clear, when we're talking about central venous pressure, there's there's an issue when we talk about examining these patients, because generally speaking, I can look at someone's neck and estimate their central venous pressure. However, in a patient with a Fontan, estimating their central venous pressure based off of their internal jugular veins and their venous waveforms is no longer useful, correct? Yeah, it's extre- it's actually extremely difficult to use things like neck veins and even IVC diameter by echo, the traditional tools we use to estimate CVP for Fontan patients. It just hasn't really proven to be reliable. Generally, you need to look at the the patient as a whole. Patients that are volume retaining and have ascites and edema, those patients have markedly elevated central venous pressure. but it can be difficult. All Fontan patients will have elevated central venous pressure by the time they get to adulthood. The okay. question does become how high, though. Sure. So let's put the situation where we're seeing this patient in their late 20s, early 30s, and we've noticed that on their vital signs that their resting oxygen saturations are now lower than they used to be. Some of the complications that you mentioned that I should be aware of are these venovenous collaterals. That's right. That's from the systemic veins like the SVC or the, or the uh, nominate vein draining straight down to the pulmonary vein. So that'll put blue blood back into your left atrium. And that's a development from these elevated pressures in the body figuring out a way to decompress. Yeah, oftentimes. Sometimes you can have someone who's got great Fontan pressures, but they can recannulate these venovenous collaterals that probably existed embryologically. Mm. Um, And in those cases, it can be reasonable to think about occluding the venovenous collaterals in the cath lab. But if those are there because of very high Fontan pressures and they're the body's way of trying to decompress, then coiling them or occluding them ends up, um, first of all, being ineffective because the body will just form more, but also limits the patient's cardiac output because that that blue blood returning to the left heart is helping to supplement the cardiac output. Another thing I should be concerned about are pulmonary AVMs then. They're usually not large AVMs. These patients will sometimes have diffuse AVMs. They're they're not like the the big vessels that you see in... um, 
like HHT, for example. They're, they're these diffuse, mm -hmm. very spidery, almost amorphous vessels that you could really only see on direct pulmonary angiography. Gotcha. Okay. And let's circle back to these issues with um, elevated central venous pressure. Like in other patients with heart failure, they can then develop cirrhosis as a result from that. And because of this elevated pressure, um, how do you normally like screen for those patients? Because that's cirrhosis is something much more subtle that doesn't present as manifesting. Oh yes, now I'm hypoxemic or I'm having exercise intolerance, but it's just a slowly progressive issue. Yeah. So uh, for the last fifteen plus years, there's been a a real recognition that liver dysfunction is a major, major source of morbidity for adult Pontan patients. And it's now universally understood throughout the adult congenital heart disease community. And the prevalence of liver dysfunction after a Fontan operation is much higher than you see in, in mm -hmm. acquired heart failure. So our program, for example, now has a standardized surveillance protocol for all adult Fontan patients where we do screening for subclinical liver disease. So what that means for us is once a year for all our adult Fontan patients, we get a full set of liver function labs. We do imaging either with CT or ultrasound of the liver. And we do surveillance for hepatocellular carcinoma, which we used to think was rare, but now turns out there's case report after case report. And now largish case series of HCC in patients with, with Fontan. So for that, we screen using AFP and annual imaging. Interesting. Okay. And there's also additionally something else while we're talking about GI complications, a protein-losing enteropathy. So these patients can get, you know, nutritional issues as well. Is that... Yeah. So protein-losing enteropathy is uh, a problem for Fontan patients. Real pure Protein-losing enteropathy, or PLE, is probably seen a little bit more commonly in the pediatric population, but we have a handful of patients on the adult side. You lose protein through your GI tract. It's characterized by hypoalbuminemia, ascites. It can really mimic uh, right heart failure and cirrhosis, and you have to have a, a suspicion. So if you have a hypoalbuminemic patient, then doing fecal, 24-hour fecal collections to look for for protein is is the right screening test for that okay now a couple of things when i was rotating on the adult congenital heart disease service that stood out in particular to me was one the the risk of developing arrhythmias and we can talk about what specific arrhythmias are most common but also i was, I was struck by how devastating some of these more quote-unquote benign arrhythmias turn out to be like patients with atrial fibrillation just don't tolerate that very well. Yeah. So particularly with the old style Fontans, these atrial pulmonary Fontans, patients would get these massively dilated right atria in a response to having a high pressure right atrium for years and years. And they would develop atrial arrhythmias that we call interatrial reentrant tachycardia or IART. They're really a form of atrial flutter, but they look 
different from your typical flutter that you'd see in uh, a patient with acquired heart disease. In a typical flutter, the flutter goes at 300 beats a minute, it often conducts two to one, so these mm -hmm. patients will classically prevent and present in two to one flutter at 150, and we're all used to recognizing the sawtooth pattern, et cetera. Yeah. After a Fontan, it's a lot more subtle. Now, one of the things that happens is because the atria are bigger, the reentrant pathway is longer, so the flutter goes slower. So the flutter rate might only be mm -hmm. 200 beats a minute, and then when a patient goes two to one, their ventricular rate might only be 90 or 100. And that can be tricky because we all know that detecting two-to-one flutter is hard because every other flutter wave is buried in the QRS. So it can look a whole lot like sinus tachycardia at 90 or 100 and mm -hmm. could sort of blow right by it. But you need to have a clinical suspicion for that. If their heart rate's higher than it typically is, if the P waves on their ECG look different than they have in the past, you ought to be suspicious. We screen our patients with ECGs each year. And um, patients with a Fontan in atrial tachyarrhythmias do not do well. So there's this uh, large body of research in acquired heart disease that suggests rhythm control may be effective to rate control in patients with AFib or flutter. That is just not true in patients with a Fontan. Sure. Almost universally, we'd prefer rhythm control in that situation, a cardioversion may work. They often will need an ablation. The other thing I'll uh, quickly say is that anytime you have a patient presenting with a new arrhythmia and congenital heart disease, you need to be very suspicious that that might be your warning sign of some hemodynamic change and start to ask yourself, gee, I wonder why this patient who's been in sinus all these years all of a sudden went into some atrial tachyarrhythmia and use that to do a comprehensive evaluation with echo and consider catheterization to try to unmask what hemodynamic perturbation led to the patient developing their arrhythmia. Gotcha. So we had indicated earlier that there was an older style of Fontan, this atria to pulmonary anastomosis, versus now in the modern surgery is to do SVC to PA and IVC to PA. Are the risk of atrial arrhythmias any less with these more modern techniques? And I say modern like in the last couple yeah. of decades than they were previously. Oh, for, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Um, so with an atriopulmonary fontan, and there's vanishingly few patients with atriopulmonary fontan left nowadays, what's happened is they've either been converted to a more modern fontan with a subsequent fontan revision, or unfortunately they've died. There's certainly some, but there's fewer and fewer. Those patients had a huge incidence of atrial arrhythmias, and it was a real problem. And that's what led to the atrial pulmonary fontan being abandoned and moving to this either lateral tunnel or extracardiac fontan. The extracardiac fontan, where you resect a lot of the atrial tissue and bring up a Gore-Tex tube graft, has the lowest rate of atrial arrhythmias. Hmm. Lateral tunnels are still much better than the atrial pulmonary fontan was. Gotcha. But um, with the extracardiac fontan, if you do have an arrhythmia, there's not an easy path back from the systemic veins back into the heart if you ever did want to do an ablation. And that's one of the challenges that you might deal hmm. with. It's not so easy to get from the veins back into the heart. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Another feared complication is pulmonary emboli. Why are these... And, I mean, pulmonary emboli are, are already to be feared within the general population, but you can kind of get used to it as a resident of seeing, as a trainee, seeing, oh, just like pulmonary emboli after pulmonary emboli, little small ones. They're like, oh, we just need to anticoagulate them, and most people do just fine. Maybe they came up with a little sinus tachycardia sort of thing. Why are these so devastating in patients with Fontan? Sure. So, well, a, a real and big pulmonary embolism would be a major problem for a Fontan patient because, as we've pointed out, there's no ventricle to pump blood through the lungs. So anything that acutely raises the impedance of getting blood through your lungs can only be dealt with one of two ways, either by increasing central venous pressure or by dropping your cardiac output. And since it's awfully difficult to acutely raise your central venous pressure, generally what happens is they drop their cardiac output and it could be a devastating event. Fortunately, real um, thromboembolic massive PE events are relatively uncommon in Fontan patients. They do happen. Fontan patients have chronically elevated central venous pressure. They have venous varicosities. That's been well documented. So it certainly can happen. But likely even more common than the acute thromboembolic event is in situ thrombus formation. And there's some early pathology studies and early nuclear medicine studies that documented a, an alarmingly high rate of in situ thrombus in Fontan patients. I think no one quite knows exactly how high the prevalence really is. I'd like to take a second just to talk about how unbelievably hard it is to diagnose a pulmonary embolism or pulmonary thrombus in these patients because this is an area where I often see mistakes being made in the emergency department or mistakes being made when, when someone has a suspicion for a PE, they go down a, a, a typical pathway. So maybe yeah. a... You're going to get a CTPE scan. They're going to get a CTPE which scan. Which relies a lot on your filling time and the timing sequence from your venous filling and Absolutely. And uh, CTPE scans, if done according to uh, a standard protocol that, that you might use for someone walking in the ER with a suspected PE, just don't work for a Fontan. And they don't work for a variety of reasons. But if you think about what happens to a patient with normal cardiac anatomy with a CTPE scan, is you inject a bunch of contrast in the arm, it goes to the right atrium where it mixes with a bunch of unopacified blood that's coming from the IVC. And then it all homogenizes in the right atrium, homogenizes in the right ventricle, and then you get a first pass in the pulmonary arteries where they're nicely opacified because you get your timing just right. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen in a Fontan. In a Fontan, you inject contrast, let's say in a peripheral IV in the arm, it comes down and that contrast goes straight to the pulmonary artery. And what happens is most of that contrast is going to stream right into the right pulmonary artery. Simultaneously, you have a bunch of blood coming up the IVC that's got no contrast in it. Mm -hmm. That's going to mix or collide with the blood coming from the SVC and preferentially stream to the left pulmonary artery. So you're gonna have a huge lack of contrast in the left pulmonary artery. And time after time, we've seen that interpreted as a patient with a 
proximal left pulmonary artery embolism, or you get mm. streaming artifact into the right pulmonary artery from the unopacified blood, it really makes it incredibly difficult. There are a couple approaches you can take. Probably the best way to deal with this, if you want to rule out a PE in a patient with a Fontan, is to get a couple acquisitions. You get an early acquisition and then a late acquisition at about 45 seconds after your injection, usually maybe 25 or 30 seconds after your first acquisition. Double the radiation. You don't have isolated contrast in the pulmonary arteries and no contrast in the pulmonary veins, which is what radiologists like, mm -hmm. but you're getting that second pass and the contrast uh, brightness isn't quite as good. So they're not beautiful images, but it's a lot better than just what you get on that first pass, which is full of streaming artifact. Sure. Okay. You have the same problem with the VQ scan, by the way, that's macro aggregated albumin. So you inject it in the arm, it mostly goes into the right pulmonary artery just because of streaming, and then it lodges there. That's what, that's what the macro aggregated albumin in a VQ scan does. So it never makes it out to the left lung. So it looks like you end up with a big perfusion defect in the left lung too. Mm. If you really need to know for sure, you can get that CT with the late phase, but direct pulmonary angiography done by an interventional cardiology with expertise in congenital heart disease, either a pediatric interventional cardiologist or an ACHD interventional cardiologist is what you need to get. Gotcha. Interesting. Super interesting. When I was recently on service, we also had a patient who was admitted Fontan physiology who was pregnant. And I think that's in part interesting because I think some centers just say no pregnancy or it's like such a high risk event. And um, whereas some centers, I think are a little more lenient in their counseling of patients. What are your thoughts about pregnancy and patients with Fontan? Yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly a hard one. Um, I think saying, no, no Fontan patient should or can get pregnant is not the right approach. So first of all, you can't stop patients from getting pregnant even if you want to. So you can yeah. counsel patients about risk, but patients won't always listen to you and you need to be aware of that. And you need to counsel patients honestly about risk. So Fontan, no doubt, is a high-risk cardiac condition for pregnancy, but it's not the highest. It's not like pulmonary arterial hypertension or severe symptomatic aortic stenosis or Eisenmenger syndrome. It's not one where we say off the bat, absolutely not, don't do it. It is one where we would counsel them that, first of all, you need to counsel them on the risk of congenital heart disease in the offspring, which is, of course, going to be higher than the general population, mm -hmm. and they need to know about that. And then you need to counsel them that there's real risk of some form of clinical deterioration during pregnancy, but most of those risks are manageable. We've had dozens of women here with Fontan have successful pregnancies. Now, some have volume retention or heart failure, and some have had arrhythmia, but the majority have had reasonably successful and uneventful pregnancies. I think that um, pregnancy, while they're still young and healthy is preferable. I would be anxious about a pregnancy in a already decompensated or marginally decompensated Fontan patient. But uh, we do not counsel specifically against pregnancy in well women with a Fontan. 
You just need to really tell them what you think the risk is. And we always talk about shared decision-making, but if there's ever a time for shared decision-making, it is really when it comes to counseling about pregnancy. So we've talked a lot about these, these complications. And as we've mentioned, the load then on the remaining ventricle can be quite severe. And I think almost universally at some stage, these patients will develop you know, symptoms of heart failure. Their EF will start to drop at a lower age. Maybe not necessarily true. So, well, I, I, I agree. I mean, Fontan patients, as they enter their 30s and early 40s, will not invariably, but often develop symptoms of heart failure. Certainly not invariably. I have plenty of quite healthy, active Fontan patients in their 30s. But commonly, they'll end up with heart failure. And we use heart failure or the term Fontan failure a little bit generically. Um, sometimes it's due to ventricular systolic dysfunction, and that we understand pretty well. But oftentimes it's not. And we don't always understand all the mechanisms of what leads to the physiology or the phenotype of heart failure in Fontan patients. Sometimes it's ventricular dysfunction, systolic or diastolic. Sometimes it's valvular. But sometimes as those left atrial pressures creep up and the pulmonary resistance creeps up and Fontan pressures start to approach 18, 19, 20, 21, those patients don't feel very well, and they, they often don't do well. It accelerates their liver disease. They may get ascites that could be related to cirrhosis or just related to right heart failure. And so the, the mechanisms of heart failure in Fontan are variable and not always well understood, but they're almost all characterized by high Fontan filling pressures. Okay. When do you start thinking about heart transplant for these patients? Boy, that's probably the hardest question in all of adults' congenital heart disease. So, in general, too late. Um, and I, I don't mean that disparagingly. I just mean that we need to be thinking about heart failure and heart transplant in these patients from a really young age. We should be starting to think about it when they're kids and teenagers. Not starting to do it, but starting to think about it because we see time after time that adult patients with Fontans develop heart failure frequently in their 30s. And transplanting a Fontan patient is not straightforward. So for starters, it needs to be done at a center that's really good at that. Even at really good centers with big ACHD programs and big transplant programs, there's no denying the fact that Fontan transplant's a high-risk transplant. Sure. And it's high risk for a variety of reasons. First of all, they've necessarily had multiple cardiac surgeries. They are often alloimmunized from multiple transfusions. They have multi-organ dysfunction with often clinical cirrhosis. Mm -hmm. And the decision about whether to do a heart transplant or a combined heart-liver transplant is a really tough one. They have multiple comorbidities with renal dysfunction. They have high venous pressure. We've talked about that, but that makes these patients bleed, right? So if you're, and they have collaterals all over the place, so they're bloody operations. It is, it is not a surgery to be done 
casually. It's not a surgery to be done by somebody who dabbles in caring for Fontans, and it's not something to be undertaken lightly. Uh, operating on really decompensated Fontan patients who have extensive collaterals and extensive cirrhosis is, is high risk. Um, even in good centers, 30-day mortality can be over 20%. There's a few wow. places around the country that have done really, really well with Fontan transplants, but it really needs to be highly, highly regionalized. Okay. Wow. We've talked a lot about maybe where we stand with Fontans. What are the future directions or areas of active research that are ongoing that you know of? Sure. So I think if you talk to adults' congenital heart disease providers, we're all hopeful that there'll be something, quote, better than the Fontan. And people have dabbled in, dabbled in advocating for leaving them shunted, you know, maybe not even completing the Fontan. I think most pediatric cardiologists don't think that's a feasible long-term solution, that these cyanotic kids, you know, really don't thrive. Mm -hmm. But... We currently don't have a great way of avoiding the ravages of the Fontan as kids get older. There are some groups that are experimenting with bioengineering and tissue engineering to see if there's a way to create pulsatility in the Fontan conduit that would augment pulmonary blood flow. That would be really appealing, that you wouldn't be dependent just on central venous pressure. But that's, that's nowhere near clinical trials quite yet. That's, that's all preclinical. A lot of the research is still going towards understanding the phenotype of Fontan failure, understanding what medical therapies might work to help improve outcomes in Fontan patients, understanding when to bring patients for transplant and how to select patients more appropriately for transplant so that we can get acceptable transplant outcomes. Mm-hmm. We should probably touch a little bit on medical therapy for Fontan patients. Um, I don't, we don't have the depth of information that we have for treating heart failure and acquired heart failure with things like ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. We don't have evidence to suggest that those treatments are specifically beneficial broadly for Fontan patients. They may be effective for those with ventricular dysfunction but sure. not broadly for Fontan patients. The treatments that we know or the treatments that we think are helpful for Fontan patients are anticoagulation for Fontan patients with risk factors for thrombosis and probably antiplatelet therapy for everyone else. You want to prevent thrombotic events. Treating rhythm disorders, that's real important. You want to maintain activity, aerobic activity, exercise, maintain a healthy body weight, avoid smoking. All these things matter for everyone, but they probably matter more for Fontan patients. And there's even clinical trials showing that breathing exercises and yoga are beneficial in improving Fontan outcomes. Hmm. And then there's been a couple clinical trials on pulmonary vasodilators in Fontan patients. We've talked about the importance of 
needing to keep pulmonary resistance low. So a couple studies have asked the question of what if we gave pulmonary vasodilators like endothelin receptor antagonists or PDE5 inhibitors, things like bosentin, sildenafil, tadalafil, ambrosentin, et cetera, to these patients, even though they don't have pulmonary vascular disease, what if we could lower their, their pulmonary resistance? Which is starting it on them while they're healthy. Starting on it while they're healthy. Without symptoms to Yeah, and there's been the a couple clinical trials that, that mm. seem promising. They seem promising. There was one randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial of bosentin in Fontan patients, and it improved CPET performance. It improved New York Heart Association functional class. And this was given broadly to Fontan patients, not just those with pulmonary vascular disease. So that's in there, but we need to remember these medicines are awfully expensive, they're tough to get approved for this indication because they don't have an FDA approval, and insurance companies often fight tooth and nail with it. So, yeah. in terms of anticoagulation, now that you mentioned that, in because of a PE can be so devastating as such an issue, and you said patients with another risk factor for being hypercoagulable. Yeah, so I'd say. All Fontan patients should probably be on an antiplatelet agent or anticoagulation. And the simplest way to think about it is your best Fontan patients should be on antiplatelet agents, and pretty much everyone else should be on anticoagulation. And that means Fontan patients with a history of arrhythmia, Fontan patients with a history of clot, Fontan patients with heart failure, those patients... Fontan patients, even with moderate ventricular dysfunction, I think you can make a, a, a case for using anticoagulation. Mm -hmm. And including those with cirrhosis probably in that? Well, anticoagulating cirrhotic patients is always hard, yeah. higher risk. But, but yes, I mean, if they don't have varices and coagulopathy and actual bleeding events, then, then I'd strongly consider it. Got it. Okay. We've had a lot of different things. I appreciate your time. Any last tidbits or pearls that we have missed or overlooked or glazed over? No, I, I think we've I think we've hit on a lot. Other than that, Fontan patients, all of them, should be cared for in a specialty ACHD center, mm -hmm. uh, and that there, I think that's I think that's that's a must. I think that the symptoms can be subtle, so the suspicion for deterioration needs to be high, which means that you need to watch them real carefully. You need to watch them with echoes. You need to get exercise testing on them. You need to do lab surveillance. You need to be pretty proactive in these patients. Got it. Okay. Again, yeah, I thank you for your time. All right. Thanks so much. It was good to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This show is sponsored in part by MedPage Today. You can find transcripts of this episode and all other episodes of AP Cardiology on medpagetoday.com. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, whose song Night Owl on their album Directionless EP 